Welcome to the Football Pink podcast, hosted by Roddy Cairns. The Football Pink is a website, magazine and documentary podcast series bringing you long-form stories and nostalgia from across the world of football. Sports stars appearing in the movie business is a crossover which has had decidedly mixed results. Think Ali McCoist in A Shot at Glory, Michael Jordan and LeBron James in the Space Jam duology, or Vinnie Jones in just about every Hardman movie ever made. But Italian Raffaele Valloni was an exception, a guy who burnished his career as an international standard footballer with spells as a lawyer, a journalist, and ultimately, a Hollywood movie star. This is the story of football's ultimate renaissance man. Valoni was born in 1916, in Tropea, Western Calabria. Calabria occupies the toe of the Italian boot, and is a beautiful, picturesque location that's often credited with being one of the country's hidden gems. Hidden, as in this area is often looked down upon by outsiders, with Italians in the north having a tendency to view it as a crime-ridden and corrupt place, all part of the great Italian north-south divide. Valoni was only in Calabria until he was two years old. His father was an ambitious young lawyer who decided to move the family up north to Turin in 1918 to set up his own legal practice. It was a good move for the young Raffaele, who would find a love for football in the calcio-mad northern city. It was evidently a two-way love affair, with Raff showing such talent that, aged just 14, Torino wanted to sign him. It wouldn't be a straightforward deal to broker, as Football Pink contributor Kirsty McLeod recalls. Valoni's powerful athletic physique and footballing ability had evidently caught the eye of the Granata, but his dad wasn't so keen. He wanted to make sure Raff stayed on the straight and narrow, and felt that he had the potential for a promising career in the family legal business. Ultimately, a compromise was reached. Young Raff Valoni would be allowed to join Torino, but only on the condition that he would concentrate on his studies and his football 50-50. It may seem a strange choice in today's world, where football is so incredibly rich as to make lawyers look like paupers, but even back then, a professional footballer in Italy would have been far better remunerated than the average working person. Valoni juggled football and studying with some aplomb, and seemed to find success in both fields. After graduating from high school, he enrolled at Turin University, where he studied philosophy and law. Meanwhile, on the pitch, he made his first team debut for Torino in 1934, at the age of just 18. The following season, Valoni picked up his first winner's medal as Torino won the Coppa Italia, only the second major trophy in the club's history. Still only a teenager, Raff was only used a handful of times, which could partly be due to him focusing more on his studies. His lack of appearances was a bit of a common feature. Looking back at the stats, you'll find he barely made it into double figures in terms of appearances for his club in those first four years. He wasn't drifting away from his studies though. Raff graduated with his degree, much to his father's delight. Torino still had a place for him, his bullish physique suiting their midfield whenever they called upon him. Perhaps it was more of a case that Valoni needed a manager who would put faith in him. And I'm sure at the time, having a part-time law student in your squad just wasn't understood. Then, along came perhaps Torino's greatest ever coach, 
and a period where Il Toro would climb the footballing ranks and become one of Europe's most dominant sides. The great Egri Erbstein, the Jewish-Hungarian coach, not only revolutionised the game, but did so against the backdrop of danger and discrimination. A man with a very creditable reputation already in Italy, Erbstein had just taken Lucchese from Luca to Serie A from Serie C in just five seasons and got his big move in 1938 as recognition of his accomplishments. The town of Luca had also become a fascist stronghold, so it was a good time for Erbstein to leave. He was aided by quite a hefty budget to build his side at Torino, but he instead chose to stay away from signing big-name stars, instead opting for younger talent and players from the lower leagues that he had recently conquered. The team he built was packed with quality, with Valoni taking his place in the midfield a lot more prominently than in the previous seasons, making 15 appearances and scoring three goals in the 1938-1939 season. Erbstein was a perfect man to help nurture the intelligent Valoni. He brought a kind of education to football. Before every game, Erbstein would hold a lesson outlining the team's tactics on a blackboard. The players are said to have called this the killer hour, but to Valoni, it felt like part of his usual routine. Erbstein's intense training was a killer of a different sort. His methods were based around the theory of learning through fun, via various games, which would end up being very competitive, itself influenced by the Hungarian football of the early 1900s. This was a base that was paved by figures such as the Scotsman John Tate Robertson and developed further by Lancashire's Jimmy Hogan. In short, it was a variation of the Scottish style of passing and moving that forms a golden thread to Renus Michel's total football and Pep Guardiola's juego de posición. In Dominic Bliss's book on Erbstein, he includes quotes from Valoni that recall his feelings of playing under Erbstein at Torino and how watching the Dutch and Ajax teams under Renus Michels later on reminded him of the team he had played in. As long ago as that, Erbstein exploited the wide areas, making use of every corner of the pitch, he said. We were playing some sort of total football. Every time one of us had the ball, his teammates were on the move in order to give him not one, but three different options. Sadly, Erbstein's time with both Torino and Valoni didn't last long. On the 3rd of December 1938, Erbstein had to leave his position as manager due to Mussolini tightening Italy's anti-Semitic laws and stripping Jews of the right to work. It was too unsafe for Erbstein to even stay in Italy, so he departed for Hungary, leaving Torino joint top of Serie A after winning six, drawing two and losing only one game in the opening nine matches of the season, with young Raf Valoni having fallen fully in love with football. At The Football Pink, we understand the passion you have for your own icons of football. That's why we've combined our unique creatives and our knowledge of football to produce the most beautiful range of football art available to you. There's a whole collection dedicated to playing icons, meaning you could own a unique piece of artwork detailing Socrates, Zidane or Pirlo in all their glory. Just visit www.footballpink.shop to browse the entire collection. Erbstein would return to Torino in 1946, having survived a Nazi-forced labour camp and very nearly ended up at the Auschwitz concentration camp. His return was one of drama and glory, as he crafted the magnificent Grande Torino side, which dominated Serie A for a spell in the post-war era, before losing his life in the tragic Superga air disaster, along with most of that all-conquering team. However, by that point, Raffaloni was long gone, 
not just from Torino, but from football itself. He had left behind the game he adored. In 1941, Valoni's dream of being a footballer for the rest of his career was ruined, thanks to the dark side of Italian football and life. He was called up to represent his country in Vienna, but a quote from the player in later years sums up the tale. Do you know why I retired from football? He said. I played in the national football team in Vienna and I discovered that the soccer match was tricked, fixed, for political reasons. I was very disappointed and I decided to give up. The trick in Vienna was one of the biggest disappointments of my life. And that was it for Valoni, the talented 25-year-old bringing his promising career to its close just as it threatened to lift off because he simply could not stand for the injustice of a fixed football match. He would not join his erstwhile Torino teammates in their Serie A successes, nor would he share their tragic fate on the hill of Suberga. Instead, Valoni would carve his own path. And what a path it was. Valoni initially focused his post-retirement efforts on the family law firm, practising alongside his father as the older man had always hoped. In those war-ravaged times, he became increasingly agitated with the world's current affairs, mostly the dictatorship of Mussolini in Italy, and the increasing threat of Nazi Germany to the world. Some reports suggest that he was involved with the anti-fascist resistance during World War II. Certainly, he soon left the legal profession to join the staff at the left-wing newspaper L'Unita. His sharp observations and superbly written articles saw him rise through the ranks at a rapid pace, and he was soon appointed the paper's head of culture. Of course, Valoni's fine education was a major factor in his successes in the fields of law and journalism. But his experiences in football may have shaped his career path too, and possibly even his political beliefs. He had seen firsthand the treatment of his coach and mentor, Egri Erbstein, who had fled the country because of the blight of fascism. He had also played in footballing styles built on team cohesions, where everyone has to be reading from the same page. Football played as if it's an art, rather than a bulldozer that's been manufactured to demolish all that it's in its path. Played by fans, for the fans. Not necessarily just for trophies and accolades, and most certainly not to favour political agendas. Despite his role at the paper, he never enrolled in the Italian Communist Party, as he didn't agree with Stalinism. He was very much his own man, the other complex face of total football. Valoni's life to that date had been a heady mix of contrasting experiences, and it seemed to be turning him into a strong-willed and interesting man. Not content to solely work at Lunita, he also moonlighted as a drama and film critic for the La Stampa paper, the daily paper in Turin. It was this work as a film critic that opened the final door in his wonderful career path, one that Valoni would go through and not come back out of, that of an internationally recognised actor. The neo-realist genre was a growing one at the time in Italy, and it would be the base for Valoni's acting career. With film budgets at the time being relatively low, the lust was for real people to be cast in movies, rather than established stars. Directors were looking at everyone they met as a potential actor that could feature in their next movie. Valoni made his first appearance on the big screen in 1942, where he had a minor part as a sailor in Goffredo Alessandrini's Noi Vivi, We the Living. But his big break would come in 1949. The director Giuseppe De Santis was working on his latest film, Bitter Rice, which was based on a woman working in the rice fields of the Po Valley. DeSantis called on Valoni for his knowledge, not only on the anti-fascist resistance, but also his depth of knowledge and passion for the working class, in particular his views on the subject of the exploitation of workers. 
DeSantis was also impressed with Filoni's physical stature and rough chiselled features, feeling he would make the perfect hunk. Bitter Rice was released in 1949 and became a box office smash, going down in history as one of the best movies to come out of the very successful neorealist era. Filoni then went on to establish himself as one of the big stars of the neorealism era, featuring in many of DeSantis' work, including Non-Peace Among Olives of 1950 and Rome 11am of 1952. In the 50s, he was a very busy man, featuring in 29 films. Curzio Malaparte, mainly known for his literature, made The Forbidden Christ in 1951, in what would be his only directorial effort. It starred Valoni as a main character, Bruno, and Curzio described him as the only Marxist face of Italian cinema, a compliment that was much appreciated. After the war, Italy's economy took a hammering, a downturn which was in correlation with the decrease in popularity of the neorealist films. Perhaps the Italian public no longer wanted to be reminded of the hard times they hoped to leave behind. In the 1960s, Valoni turned his attention to the stage. He travelled to Paris and London before landing a gig in A View from the Bridge by Peter Brook, an adaptation of Arthur Miller's play. He played the role of Eddie Carboni for 550 nights in Paris's Theatre Antoine, frequently receiving a standing ovation, despite the play being performed in French. This performance would earn him his chance to hit the big screens yet again, in 1961, when Sidney Lumet made the film version of the play. Valoni played the same part as he did on stage, with the film being shot in both French and English. He had made it to Hollywood, and he intended to stay there. Over the years, Valoni would appear in several notable films, alongside Michael Caine in The Italian Job in 1969, and much later with Al Pacino in The Godfather Part 3 in 1990. His filmography was long and impressive, with his last role coming as late as the year 2000, when he was 84 years old. Valoni was even knighted in 1994, given the Order of Merit of the Italian Republic for his contribution to the arts. Raph Valoni passed away in 2002, suffering a heart attack at the age of 86. He did so having achieved success in football, law, journalism and acting some of the most competitive and difficult fields to make headway in. That he did so at all is testament to his character, talent, bravery and intelligence. One thing is for certain, Raph Filoni's time on this earth was a life well lived. You have been listening to the Football Pink Podcast. For more stories like this one, please subscribe to the podcast and visit footballpink.net.